every uh, every year for a while, um, I lead worship at a youth camp uh, for my buddy Denver, and I could tell you about Denver, but uh, some of the youth kids know Denver out in Kansas. Y'all remember when we went out to Kansas, right? And so I still go out and I, I do worship sometimes to them, and they really like this song, Ancient of Days. Uh, we've, is this the first time we've done that, Nate? This song here? Yeah. So it's crazy because we're reading about that in Daniel 7, and I had this passing thought on Thursday evening, I think I was in the shower, and I was like, man, I should text Nathan and say, dude, we should play this Ancient of Days song. And then I thought... I'm not going to do that because as, you know, someone who's had this experience, it's kind of annoying to hear, you know, a couple days before you have to play a song like, oh, hey, will you play this song? By the way, I think God wants you to do it. And also, you know, you're really messing up if you don't follow the Spirit's leading or, you know, whatever. So I didn't want to put that on Nathan. And then Friday before we started our Shepherding Council meeting, I, uh, I pulled up Planning Center and Nathan had already, like he knew of the song and had already put it in there. I thought, isn't that cool? Isn't that crazy how that works? So uh, song's Ancient of Days. It comes from what we're going to read. We're going to be in Daniel 7. So you can turn there. Oh, we're going to use the chalkboard this morning, so get pumped or grimace, whichever you choose. Is that the right place? I never know where to put this. I'm just going to trust you guys to yell at me if it's in the wrong spot. I feel like, is this back? Okay. Yeah. Thank you, wings, the people from the wings. Hey, if you want to turn to Daniel 7... Matthew 26 and 2 Corinthians 5. Um, we'll also be in Genesis 4. So, you know, it, it's tough because we really value this idea of, of teaching through Scripture and like going verse by verse and unpacking it. But as we've been reading the whole Bible this year together, sometimes you've probably noticed a theme after, you know, more than eight months of this happening. I tend to just cover these big themes that are all in Scripture because it stands out to me. And I think it's so incredible how God has interwoven and connected Scripture. And so we're, uh, you know, as we've been doing this, we've been reading through the Bible. That's what we've been doing. I'm going to write Bible up here, right? And we've said all along that the Bible is one unified story that points to King Jesus, right? The Bible. So when you think about Bible, you need to be thinking about Jesus. Oh man, I just combined an E and an S. That's not an English letter. Jesus. Fantastic. And if you were with us in the Sermon on the Mount series, when I say Jesus, you think of? Say it like you mean it. Kingdom. Kingdom. Thank you. I need Jim Dixon here to yell it at the top of his lungs. He used to, he used to really hit that. Kingdom. I think I accidentally just called out Jim for not being here. I'm sorry. Uh, my bad. Uh, all right. <laughs> Just imagine, like, if he's watching from home, the, like, quickly typing, I'm here, I'm here. Anyway, so, anyway, whatever. So, uh, and then, so, so you think of the Bible, you think of Jesus, you think of Jesus, think about the kingdom. Now, here's what's interesting in all of this. Jesus has a, a reference for himself. Um, we, we tend to give Jesus a last name, as kind of a joke, not really, but we have Jesus... Start to the sea. Christ, right. And Christ comes from, uh, I believe it's a Greek word, maybe also in Latin, Christos, which is uh, king, Messiah, those sort of ideas. It's an identifier, right? Do you know how often Jesus referred to himself as Messiah or Christ? Basically none. Like, just, it's just not really. He affirmed it when other people did. Do you know what Jesus called himself the most? Hey, son of man. That's where we're going today. So, think about Jesus, you think about kingdom, you think of the son of man. And we're going to talk about why that matters. We don't, uh, when's the last time you just said son of man in casual conversation when we're talking about Bible thingies? 
Not often, right? It's not, it's not really our thing. We don't really talk about that. Uh, we're going to hit it. We're going to hit it hard today. We're going to be in Daniel 7. There are so many qualifiers and things that I want to say before we start talking about Daniel 7, and we just don't have time. So let me just talk to uh, my prophecy apocalyptic people who just really love this stuff and eat it alive, and, and maybe you're, you followed uh, some of the basic people who've talked about this over the histories, and you're like, oh man, I'm really into this sort of prophecy and interpretation. I want you to know that we're taking a step back from that and saying, what is the original audience seeing when they read this, and what is the vast majority of Christian history looking at this for, right? I'm not interested, and our shepherds are not interested in telling you how any of these apocalyptic visions connect to the future, and how it's right now, and oh, this, this must represent this, and all. I don't think that's helpful or healthy. And so if you're here, and you're waiting for that, and you're expecting that, come talk to me afterwards, and we can wrestle with that. But we're not going to cover that up here, because I don't think that's how the original people were reading this. And I know that because the biggest experts in the Bible at the time completely missed Jesus referencing it. In fact, they killed him over it. We'll read that later. And so I think it's possible that whatever you think the interpretation of this is, there's a good chance that you could be wrong. And so let's, let's open-handedly read it and just say, what, what is the main idea we can glean from this? Let's together be careful on what we're reading because arrogance has hurt Christians and men and women who are stronger in their knowledge than us. And so let's be careful not to let our understanding hold too tightly to ruin what maybe God's trying to say. Can we, can we do that together? We're just going to pray. We're going to pray the Spirit guides us because I know some of this stuff can get hairy for us. We're going to pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather and read your words. And as we as we walk through times of looking at, at your prophecy and apocalyptic literature and those things, God, we want to open our hands and just ask that your spirit would reveal to us, well, what, what do we do with this? What does this mean? What are you trying to tell us as those who follow you who want to look to Jesus in every part of our life to see your kingdom come and your will be done? May your spirit guide us now as we read your word. Amen. Daniel is a book about trying to live faithfully when you are in exile, when you are uh, pulled from your home and everyone's living differently. Um, it's very relatable to a lot of people because you probably can think of a time when there are people in history who the vast majority of the culture is not following exactly what the Lord wants. In fact, you might be in a culture where the vast majority of the culture might not be trajecting towards what the Lord wants or the ways of Jesus. And so it's kind of relatable to us. We have a lot of stuff we can unpack, but I want to talk about dreams for a minute because this is kind of a theme in Daniel and uh, dreams have been a big deal in my life. And so I want to just kind of mention, we read these dreams in scripture, dreams can mean several things. Sometimes they just incite uh, fear and tension and, and then someone needs to interpret them and kind of make sense of, of some sort of pro prophetic understanding or some sort of symbolism, right? Um, there's times where dreams are just mentioned vaguely as things that just torment and things that cause problems. And so what we can understand about dreams at the most basic level, I would say, is that uh, even if we look at maybe a secular view of dreams, dreams are things that happen in our psyche that mean something, there's something, right? But I don't know if it's fair to say that every dream you ever have is something deeply spiritual that has to be interpreted. But I also think it's fair to say, hey, maybe there is something there and we should consider. The reason I say that is because I live in the real world with real people and I talk to them and I've talked to people whose dreams are calling them to constant relapse from their addiction. I live in that world. Um, I relapse a lot of my dreams. And and that doesn't mean that I'm on the verge of relapse. That doesn't mean that I've actually relapsed. It actually just creates a lot of fear in me. In fact, I have dreams where I'm just angrily screaming at someone. And then I wake up and I feel like, man, I've really hurt myself and hurt this person. But it's not real. 
Have you ever, have you had that experience? Have you had an experience where a dream has maybe put emotions or thoughts or something in you that's just not there? And we could say, man, that's a lie. That's got to be connected something to, to evil, to whatever. But also sometimes you want to think, maybe is that in me? And you want to humbly come before God and say that. In Daniel, dreams are connected with uh, visions, apocalyptic prophecies, and those sort of things to say, hey, these need interpreted. And, and thankfully, they get interpreted several times. But we still have this issue of, a crazy dream in Daniel 7, similar to the dream we saw in Daniel 2. Uh, just weird, right? And you've experienced this. You've had a time in life where someone says, dude, I had the weirdest dream last night. And then you start the conversation, right? It's kind of the world we walk into. Dreams, right? Uh, so we're going to read this. Open Daniel 7. We're going to mess with some dream stuff. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up, the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on t two feet like a man, and the, and the mind of a man was given to it. Anyone have dreams like this? Super weird? You don't want to raise your hand, right? This is weird. This weird stuff happened all of a sudden. Whoa, right? Imagine, dream, vision, just poof, right there. And behold, another beast, a second one, a second beast, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, another beast, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast. Here we go. This is the fourth beast, super beast. Fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things." Whoa. Right? Do we dream like this? Come on. This is, this is intense stuff. And I think it's, it's interesting. I was going to ask uh, one of the, the artists in our church. I was going to say, hey, just for fun, can you just, just draw this? Just read this and at first hand, just draw what you think this looks like, right? We didn't get time for that. Uh, but I think it'd be interesting. Take time just to sit in this. Just read and imagine this. Because we read this and I think sometimes our hesitancy is like, this is just weird Bible stuff. They say this, and people have dreams and visions, and I've seen, you know, people depict these things with 3D animation stuff. But, like, could you imagine seeing this, these things, these beasts rising up, right? And your language is limited. You're, like, trying to define, it was kind of like this, but then it's like this, and it's like this. You don't have a category for what's going on here. So you're just putting words together, right? Trying to understand this. Man, it's intense experience. It's interesting, uh, I don't, I'm not going to put up the list, but uh, we could go through and we could look at Isaiah and Psalms and the prophets. This idea of beasts being connected with rulers and kingdoms and visions, it's all over. 
the Old Testament. It's not just in Daniel. It's not like all of a sudden the readers or Daniel seeing this and he's like, whoa, I have no category for this, right? Um, this is happened in Isaiah. If you remember, we were through Isaiah. Uh, Babylon was talked about as being a, like a lion. That was an issue in there. In Psalms, there's several ideas of this. Horns are a constant theme in Scripture of power, of authority, of rulers that are, that are coming up. So it's not like Daniel has no category for what's going on, right? He has some understanding. We kind of think this is just weird. Man, Daniel, Daniel had a bad night. Maybe he ate some weird stuff. He's having a weird, weird time. No, he, he has some understanding of these things because he knows Scripture, right? Uh, it doesn't end. It keeps going. Let's look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, here it is, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair and his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fires. A Godmobile, right? It's like this moving God throne thing. It's incredible. Burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. Turns into a courtroom scene. Whoa court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Uh, typical understanding books, this is, this is the way things ought to be. Things that were written down, decrees of the king, uh, similar idea when it talked about scrolls. This is like, this is the way things should be. And, and you've heard of things like the book of life and any sort of thing. That the idea of that is that there is a record in which the ancient of days, he knows stuff. He knows the way things ought to be. And so when the court convenes, when he's judging, He's got the way things ought to be that he's looking at. He has the right record of things. That's what's happening. It's a court scene, like an exhibit almost. Like this is objective evidence. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So you have the Ancient of Days, God Most High, as it'll be described later on. And the important part here is he will judge. You think like, why, why do we need to know this? Well, this is great news for Daniel because these beasts are rising up and this stuff, stuff is going bad, but God's going to judge. But it should beg the question, wait a minute, but what about, what about all the, the, the earth that's being trampled by super beasts? I mean, there's inhabitants here, right? Like there's people, what happens? Like this sounds pretty bad. I mean, God's judging it but, but maybe if, if you're like Daniel, you might have the past. What about me? What about, what about humans? What's, what's going on? Uh, keeps going. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Son of man. Uh, this is Aramaic here. Do you know what the uh, Aramaic term for man is? It's the same one for Hebrew. Adam, right, right. This is one like Adam. This is a people person, right? It's, it's, it's of, of the human persons. So some, some human is what the language is communicating, and they're rising up. There's a human one, right? And they're, they're rising up. It's interesting, because if you read Ezekiel, you heard this phrase, right? When God was talking to you, you'd say, son of man, son of man, son of man. But this son of man is different, right? It's still a human-like one, but this human-like one rises up and is enthroned, is presented, before the Ancient of Days, right? 
He is given dominion over everything, all people, nations, languages, everything. Everlasting kingdom. What does this sound like? Does this remind you of any, any maybe promise of God? This is the Davidic covenant. 1 Samuel 17, if you remember, you've been following along with this in Scripture. Like, God has always wanted to bring a people together. And we've seen time and time people fail that. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, all of these human figures, they're almost there. They're almost right. And then, no, they just don't. They don't do it. But then Daniel sees, wait, there is one that comes up. Right? It's kind of when we talked about uh, the seed. Uh, the stump is the seed. And there's going to be something that sprouts out. There's this constant language in Proverbs. There is an idea in the Hebrews that God is going to make things right. And it's going to come through a king and a kingdom. And it's going to work out. He's going to do it. And we talked about last week, and we talked about how God's going to fundamentally change our heart. Right? That's got to be in play. God's going to write his law on us. All these, all these ideas start coming together. It's like, wait, now it involves the Ancient of Days judging these beasts, and the Son of Man rises up. The vision gets interpreted for us. We can start in verse 17. It really helps when uh, we have these scenes and uh, some, some creature, some being, it doesn't specifically say here, we can assume it's maybe an angel, but someone there explains this to Daniel. And it's great because he asked. Daniel's inquiring. He's like, what's going on? Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints, the holy people, a translation there for you. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. I know, like, I, I feel it. I feel it happening. This is starting to get in the weeds, and you're like, okay, okay. Whew. We've got vision, and now we've got interpretation. How, I, you got to tell me how it applies to me. I'm going to leave, David. I can't follow. Okay, bear with me. We're going somewhere here, right? But we've got to understand what's being said here, because this isn't natural for us. We don't talk about this. We don't read these sort of things typically, and so we've got to wrestle with it a little bit. So someone's explaining this to us, and they say these four beasts, they're what? They're kings, right? Assumably kingdoms as well, because, you know, they've got kingdoms and kings, and they're there, and they're going to rise out of the earth. But the saints, the holy people, they're there, and they're of the Most High. They shall receive the kingdom and possess it. So just this basic reading, if you're looking at the interpretation, and then this person's explaining it to Daniel, what do we understand? Who is the Ancient of Days? It must be the Most High. Because that's what he says. He says, the Most High. And then the saints, the holy people. So if you're listening to this, you're thinking, like, wait, wait. Son of man must be Jesus, right? Because that's us. Like, we come from a situation where we've heard 88 times in the New Testament, Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. But right here, first, the first interpretation that he's given is it's an understanding, wait, wait, there is a holy people of the Most High. You have the Ancient of Days and Son of Man. And of those people, those holy people, they're being trampled, they're being, they're being weighed down by this oppressive beast. But there's going to be a court that convenes. There's going to be a judgment. The Ancient of Days is going to overthrow. And someone from the holy people, the Son of Man, is going to rise up. Hold on. This is their hope, right? Does it sound like everything you've read in the prophets? This is the idea, right? We're seeing beasts, kings, kingdoms, the Most High, the Ancient of Days, Son of Man. How do the holy people receive the kingdom? There's some connection here. Where there's a judgment that happens, right? The Son of Man, or the Ancient of Days has a judgment, and then the Son of Man is risen up. In verse 23, he starts talking about the super beast. He kind of defines that. This is the terrifying beast. It's the one that devoured and broke everything to pieces. It's got, you know, uh, these ten horns and another one popping up and three horns you usurp. So, verse 23, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, 
And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, like crush, trample into nothing, wear them out. They're just being worn down. He shall wear them out, the saints of the Most High, the holy people. They shall think to change the times and the laws. They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed, destroyed to the end. So the super beasts, kings, kingdom, and then there's all these kings that rise up out of it. It's big bad stuff, right? And our minds naturally go to history. Right? We could make a list. I could just start asking, hey, peoples, what are some bad kingdoms and kings that have existed? Or what are some bad empires? Or what are some world war, world war histories that you can, and we could, we could start doing this. I think that's the point. Um, but we, we don't have time to unpack that. All of a sudden, we can make connections to all these different things. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed by the end. All this awful stuff's going to take place. Bad things are happening. But the Ancient of Days is on his throne. There's none above him, none before him. All of time is in his hands. He controls it. Our God is the Ancient of Days. And the kingdom and the dominion, verse 27, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey. That's it. That's Daniel 7. Is that enough? We've got to keep going. But there's a lot there, right? Man, I'm watching. I'm just watching you guys. Just like, holy cow. Like, yeah, I know. It's a lot. We're, ta- we're walking through it though. Right. So, whose kingdom? Let's, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints. Whose kingdom? Is it, are we talking about the kingdom of the ancient of days? The kingdom of the son of man? The kingdom of the saints? The kingdom of the beast? What, who are we talking about here? Ah, Welcome to biblical prophecy and apocalyptic literature. Yes, the answer is yes. And that's the point, is that we're looking at it saying, hold on, like I have all these questions, but it seems to all connect, and that's where the author's pulling you, to say, hey, guess what? Is, is it God's kingdom? Yes. Is it the Son of Man's kingdom? Yes. Is it the Holy People's kingdom? Yes. Is it the beast's kingdom that's being taken away? Yes. It doesn't work in our minds. We want an equation. Two plus two equals four. Come on, give me the scientific method, David. That's, that's not... Welcome to the Bible, right? The Bible's strange, guys. And thank God it's strange because it draws us in. It begs questions that, that leave us to wonder, that leave us to point to the Lord and say, God, you must be above us. None, none before you, none above you. You have everything. I don't fully understand these things. Now, imagine Daniel. Can you, can you think of a people who have been trampled and oppressed by a large beast and kingdom? Come on, talk to me. Okay. And in Daniel's time? The Israelites! Welcome to Daniel! Here they are. They're in exile. So Daniel sees us. Oh, this is us. This is where I am. Can you think of um, one of God's saints who was thrown to a beast? Oh, there it is. Come on! It's too good! It's like the Bible's connected. Whoa! It's so incredible. And so you read this in context and think, wait a minute! Daniel's making a lot of sense of this because he's living this, right? And if you want my sidebar commentary, it's out of my notes. It's interesting that 
people who read this during uh, uh, Nero's reign, or people who read this during Antiochus's reign, or people who read this during World War II, or people in Ukraine, they read this and they find themselves in it. Why? Because the Bible is written to all of people of all times. Because the Bible is a message that says God is on his throne. King Jesus is going to overcome. He is king. Spoiler alert. That's where we're going. Uh, we got to, before we get to Matthew 26, we got to cover something. It's hard to know what to do with all this because we, we're so flooded with different camps and different ideas and we bring all sorts of biases to this. Uh, I want to I cover two paths that happen here and, and why I think Jesus kind of helps release us from the tensions on this. Uh, there are some scholars that I read and that I respect, I studied in school, I studied this week, that, that would say um, this is all connected to the past. Uh, if, if the first kingdom, the lion, is Babylon, then you have Persia, then you have Greece, then you have uh, the Syrian Seleucid Empire, right? Uh, then, then this is, must be what this is talked about. And it turns out that, uh, an, an, oh, I can't think of his name, Anti, Anti, Antiochus, thank you. Local scholar Nate. When Antiochus comes and he rules, right, uh, with the Seleucid Empire, this is in Syria, 160 BC. Dude, this guy, he conquers Jerusalem. He makes Judaism illegal. He starts changing the laws and the times, literally what it says in Scripture. He's doing these things. He's killing Jews. It's the worst persecution they've seen up to this point. He's murdering them in the temple, skinning them in the temple. He's slaughtering pigs in the temple. It's a terrible guy awful. And so some people read this and say, see, this is the past. It already happened. This, is, this has already happened. We can move on. Daniel was just getting a prophecy for, you know, relatively short time later, and this is what happened. There are some other people, scholars that I read and respect and that, that I think have some great things to say. They would argue, no, 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 no. This isn't just the past. Sure, maybe that's there, but this is actually the future. This is the future, and, and there, are, there are times that are coming, and we need to interpret signs, and this was written to us so that we could be ready, and we could interpret, and we could understand what's going on, and, and then we could, we could prepare. We could know what's happening, right? And so they're saying this is all in the future. We want to identify what's happening and respond in some way in the future. And as I've, as I've wrestled with this, personally, and, and I've seen those different theologies play themselves out, and, and sometimes the arrogance that creeps in, or the, the arguments, and the diagrams, and this picture, and that picture. I think when we read the way Jesus talks about it, it at least gives us enough pause to say, maybe we don't know as much as we think we do. Maybe, maybe there are things going on now, then, in the future, that maybe all relate. And that's where we're going to land this morning. If you could turn to Matthew 26. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. He's with the high priest, uh, the leaders of Jerusalem, and they've gathered him. It's time for him to die, right? And this is one of the 80-something times Jesus talks about the Son of Man. We're going to read it together, and we're going to drill in on it. Then we're going to talk about beasts, and then we're going to wrap up. Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Why are they gathered? To put Jesus to death. How are they trying to put Jesus to death? False testimony. So just, this, is, this is the facts. Like Matthew just says this as a matter of fact. Like, oh, like you do. 
you know, like corrupt court cases happen, right? And we're just supposed to, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But if you've been following the Bible along, if you've been following Jesus' ministry, you're like, wait a minute, he's healing people, he's doing so much good for society, he's loving people, he's not like, hoarding wealth, or he's not harming anybody. Oh, no, they're going to kill him, and they're going to do it falsely. That's what's happening. Everyone knows it. Jesus knows it. The high priests know it. That's what they're doing. Verse 63, and the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us. Tell us that you're the Son of God. That's what they're saying. Just, just say it out loud. Say it. I dare you. Do it. Say it. Because then they, they can punish him, right? Just say it. Say these, say these words, right? Jesus said to him, you have said so. Bam. Man. Man. Wouldn't it be cool if we could just all have such resolve and such confidence and, and such wisdom from the Spirit to just speak as Jesus does these situations? It's so incredible. Like, it's like you can't tell if he's picking a fight or if he's trying to defuse when he just say, you say so. So great. But he doesn't stop there. Then he quotes Daniel. But I tell you, from now on, catch this, from now on, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes. Have you ever been so mad that you just rip your clothes off? Yeah, I, maybe that's just me. I can relate. But you just get so mad. You're like, Hulk out. Like, Grr. He rips his clothes. And he says, utter blasphemy. What further witness do you need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. This is what killed Jesus. This moment. You want to talk about legally, court-wise? Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. If I go to a Comic-Con, or a, uh, a I, won't, I won't burst the bubble, but let's say I go to a Comic-Con. You're familiar with Comic-Con? Where geeks gather. Maybe you're just like, ah, nerds, geeks, that's fine. Where they gather, those folks. And I were to put on a black helmet, and a black cape, and a red stick. And if I walked up to someone and I said, I am your father. Everyone knows what's happening. You know what's happening. You don't even like those movies, some of you. And you know exactly what's happening. The person I'm talking to knows who I think I am, and the person I'm talking to knows who I assume them to be, right? Someone just say it, please. Star Wars, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, thank you. I'm just afraid someone in the room's like, how did we get from Daniel to Star Wars? Okay, so I want to make sure we can go on. So here, this is, this is the scene. All these people studied the Bible more than you. They know more. They've memorized more scripture. They are the most learned of learned of the time. They know everything. All Jesus has to do is quote this. And he simultaneously says, I'm the son of man. And then he challenges. It begs the question, who's Jesus saying the beast is? Scholars, scholars are out on that. Some scholars say that he's directly implying that they're the beast, which would make sense. And you could argue that from Daniel 7. I've went nuts studying that in the last couple days. But some also say, no, he's just saying he's the son of man. And it kind of goes back and forth. But regardless, Jesus is making a statement. He's the son of man. And his people, the people who follow him, if you follow Jesus, the kind of people following him, they're the outsiders. They're not the religious elite. They're not the social people. His people, the saints of the Most High, being interpreted by Jesus' ministry, are these outsiders who just choose to believe in Jesus. Broken people, schmucks, losers. And as long as they come to Jesus and follow him, okay, now he's saying the Son of Man will be lifted up. Read it again. He says, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand, the power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. So they kill him. 
Jesus is the Son of Man in his mind. That's how he identifies himself 80 plus times. He's constantly, the Son of Man has come to, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And he will be risen up, he will be given dominion over everything, his kingdom lasts forever. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, of, of the Noahic covenant, the Moses, it's all there. This is him. And this plays through their minds, so they tear their robes, they're so mad, we gotta kill this guy. He's messing up everything. When the Son of Man is rising and overcoming, what, what did we read in the vision that the Son of Man is rising above and overcoming? The beasts. The beasts. The judgment's happening, and the Son of Man is, is risen, lifted up, and everything's given to him. I want to talk about beasts for a minute, because I, as I read this, I think, that, I think these things were in Jesus' mind, but at the risk of imparting too much on what I think Jesus thinks, I'll say these things are definitely all throughout Scripture. And, and I think it's worth noting. When we talk about beasts in the Bible, we see uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, we've talked about this a lot, we are created in God's image. We are created to rule alongside Him. And we are created to have a good, we said, He created good things. And we are created in that image to create good things. We teach this like every week. This is the, this is the ultimate ideal. How do you know what good things are? We have to look to the objective, the objective source of good things. You have no idea what a good thing is because our, our, our role tends to tarnish things. And if you have something in your life right now, you'd say it's good. If someone comes up and says, hey, what's good with you? What's good? And you have an answer for that, you need to take a step back and say, hold on. How does that connect to what God does? Because God is the source of goodness, right? We tend to muck this stuff up. So we've got to look to God. We are created in his footsteps. And then all of a sudden, we see humans trying to be like God. The serpent deceives a beast. Talk about that another time. But a serpent deceives it. You could be like God. You could decide good from evil. And I say every time I preach, I think, but I'm going to mention now, the crux problem in your life is that evil's still whispering that lie. God's not really going to take care of you. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to be like God. You've got to decide good from evil. Every problem in your life, your marriage, your parenting, your work problems, in some way it's tarnished with this idea, you could be like God. You could decide good from evil. And so as we give into that temptation, we see less good and more evil consistently in Scripture, and then it seems like we become less and less of the humans God created us to be in, in Scripture, more and more like beasts. And if that phrase, like beasts, is uncomfortable to you, let me remind you of some things in Daniel. Daniel 2.38 comes in, and when uh, Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, one of the first interpretations is Daniel tells him, you are above the animals. You're above the, the beasts. God's given you that. It's an interesting, interesting side note that Daniel says. You are awesome, Nebuchadnezzar, and God's given you this role above the beasts. And two chapters later, what happens to old Nebi? He becomes like a beast. He's eating grass in the field. He's walking around on there. And then we have in Psalm 73, 22, he says, I was brutish and error ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What a, when you think about beasts, you think about wild animals, you know, I, um, they're, I have a, I would say a healthy, but maybe it's an unhealthy fear of horses and, uh, and of cows. When I go hunting, if there are cows where I'm trying to go, I will not like 
like be the tough farmer who walks through the cows. I will walk as far as I can around the cows. Because I was in middle school, a horse kicked a kid that I knew and killed him. And so I have in my mind this idea that horses and cows, they'll just kick you and kill you. And so I'm terrified of them. But here's the thing. If you've been, I know those of you who are farmers who have stories of, yeah, the cow just lost his mind and trampled me. I don't have an answer for it. Like maybe it's this, maybe it's this. But sometimes beasts just act like beasts. That's what they do. Did you guys see the, uh, the show When Animals Attack? It was popping on TV for a while. And you, just, you have, oh, poopsie, cute little dog. I just like devours you for no good reason. People get pet monkeys and it's like, oh, it's a cute monkey for five, six years. And then it rips your arms off. Why? Because it's a beast, right? They have full of, they're full of impulse. They don't have self-control. They have instincts. We actually have analogies for this in our culture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this here. Sometimes uh, there was a phrase back in the day, people would say, men are like animal, male chauvinistic, Pigs, right. Come on, raise your hand if you've heard that men are like pigs. Come on, you've heard that phrase. We have that phrase, right? If someone's being really stubborn, they're acting like a, careful, a donkey, right, right? We, but an animal, you get it, they're being stubborn. They're, some of you are like, what? what? You get it. They're being single-minded, single-focused. They're acting like a mule, like a donkey. They're not seeing the world around them. They're losing control. Acting like pigs, just consuming We see this beast language. We see that humans have a unique ability. God's given us this ability. We can overcome beastly urges. Can we not? And, and we can have self-control for greater good of others in love. That's one of the major things that separates us from the animal king. Genesis 4-7. The first time sin is ever mentioned in the Bible. Cain and Abel. God's talking to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to to you. But you must rule. We are given dominion over the beasts. You must rule over this. The reason God is using this language, interesting, in Hebrew, that word crouching at your door, it's rabatz. Say rabatz. You have to roll it. Class. Rabatz. Yeah. The word can mean lying down. But other times in Scripture, it also refers to an animal crouching, ready to prowl. In fact, uh, there's a Semitic uh, view of this in which they had a phrase that was used with the same idea of rabats, where there were demons that stood at doors ready to attack people who came through them or who, who entered these demonic places. It's a familiar concept to the Jews, to the Hebrews, to the ancient Israelites that sin has this demonic power crouching, ready to devour you, right? Uh, Peter picks up on this idea when he says the devil roars like a or prowls like a lion, right? This idea of a creature ready to get you, right? And we treat sin like, oh, I can just overcome it. I can just decide not to look at porn anymore. I can work really hard and never drink alcohol again. I can work really hard and not be a jerk and yell at people. And the Bible says it's crouching at your door like a beast ready to devour you. And we see this impulse all through Scripture. Sex, money, power, death, suffering unending appetites turning into beastly desires where they just consume and consume and crush other people. We see the Lord's chosen people struggle with the same. Moses, David, Solomon being consumed. Different power, sex, money, just different things consuming them. And eventually we see even Israel. Worst culture in the Bible. Everyone gets really upset with the Canaanites. Why? Because they're sacrificing their kids. Literally the opposite of what God said. Be fruitful, multiply. And they're burning their kids. And what do we read? Three, four weeks ago, what's Israel doing? They're burning their kids. They're setting up sex temples. They're doing all the things. They're becoming less human. They're becoming like beasts. There's this theme through Scripture. 
Every human has this war inside of them. Catch this. You might just read Daniel, and you might just hear Jesus, you might think, oh yeah, this is just the past, this is just the future. I think there's clearly something deeper here. All of us have sin crouching at our door. Sin turns us into less than what we were supposed to be. Sin turns us less than human. It turns us into beasts that just consume, that trample for their own good, for their own desires. And we see this pattern over and over in Scripture. But Jesus, the Son of Man, He comes to conquer the beast. He he comes and he doesn't sin, as Hebrews tells us. He doesn't struggle with these things. And he's going to be exalted over the beast. He's going to sit at the right hand of the Lord. He's going to have his kingdom forever. How does the beast get conquered? Because Jesus gets trampled by this beast. Sin, evil, death. He gets trampled by it and then he raises three days later. We have an empty tomb and he's king now. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the one who conquers these things. And so he can say, I'm the son of man. He's the one that's going to be enthroned. He's the one that's going to get conquered. This is the ultimate hope that we have for the evil, for the heart issues. All these things we mention. We see all these themes in Scripture we talk about. Jesus. That's why we say every week to look to Jesus. Mark 10, 45. It says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as the ransom for many. Catch this. If Jesus is the Son of Man, and he is, because he said that. If Jesus is the Son of Man, and he's come to defeat evil, sin, and death, then we must see a connection between the beast that we see in these visions in Scripture, and sin, evil, and death. There has to be some connection. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that, that Christ can sympathize with our weakness because He was made like us, but in every respect, He was tempted just as we were and yet without sin. I want to land on 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God for our sake. Before that, Paul writes this, Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, it's a new creation. If you're in Christ, hear me. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Which says, if you're not in Christ, you, you're not. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, which means to change, to transform. He, he reconciled us to himself. He made us a new creation, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You're not just saved from these beastly impulses. You're saved to a kingdom in which you go out and you reconcile others in the name of Jesus, and you let them know, hey, hey, these things that are overcoming you, you can be set free. Paul picks up on this analogy. James, Peter, hey, hey, we have this ministry. We've got to go out. People need fundamentally changed. And I've been changed by Jesus. And your only hope is you can be changed as well. The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled, changed, transformed, fundamentally adjusted the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We need to be a new creation. Listen. It's, it's so hard to, to stand up here and cover all of this son of man stuff and all of this, this deep-rooted prophecy, apocalyptic stuff in Daniel 7 and say, hey, here's, here's what I land on. But as we prayed about this as shepherds, we wrestled through it, we need you to understand, I need to understand, sin is crouching at your door. 
And the theme we've seen in the Old Testament thus far is that when you give into that rebellion, when you believe you can be like God, when you have these parts of your life, uh, in, in, we read in 2 Kings, these secret places, these things that are hidden that you just let erect in your life to be bigger and bigger and bigger, they consume you, they lead to death because you become less than human, you become a beast, a person who just only cares about their own desires, their own impulse, their own appetites. But Jesus says... I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the Son of Man. There is no hope in me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. Whatever these beastly impulses are that are in you, these things that are pulling you away from God, Jesus is the answer. And what's beautiful about this is that if you read this again during Nero's time, during, during Antiochus' time, during, during the, the World War II time, during right now, if you read it, you say, man, this relates. It's these, these things and these signs and they're all aligned. And the point is it's because King Jesus is overall. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And so if these things were written for anything, it was to point us to Jesus, to recognize there are things coming against us, the world, the flesh, the devil, these beastly impulses. And we must look to Jesus. As we move to a time of response. I want to just encourage, I want to pray that the Spirit would move in you. What beastly impulses are in you? And, and I don't want that just to be a cute analogy of like, oh yeah, it said beast, so now you're saying beast. This is all through Scripture. You've heard us preach and teach about These things corrupt us. Second Kings, it says, they worshipped worthless idols and they became worthless. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And if you're being honest with yourself, you can't. But Jesus has all authority. And so as an individual, I would want you to take this time to respond to say, hey, what things am I not submitting to Jesus? How do I need to look to Jesus? How do I need to have this posture? Open my hands and say, man, this is what I'm missing. Maybe as a church, we need to open our hands and say, hey, hold on. What things are we tolerating? What beastly things are we just letting pass in our culture, in our city, in our church, and we're not standing up against them because we're passive, because we're, we're, we're being lazy, because we don't want to ruffle feathers? What things do we need to open up and say, hey, hold on, we need to look to Jesus because he's the solution for these things. We've said before, we're not a church that lets marriage issues just go by. We're not a church that lets parenting issues just go by. If you want a church that's just going to come in here and you can sit and just come and go without actually living life with people, this isn't the church for you because we believe that we're one body and that we're called together to be intricately one in him, to walk together to be like Christ. And that involves hard conversations. That involves loving each other and saying, hey, I see these beastly things coming up. We've got to look to Christ together. I don't know the beastly impulses in your life. I don't know what evil's doing, but I do know that sin is crouching at your door. You're not above it. I'm not above it. I've had times this week, this morning, snapped at my wife, didn't want to be wrong, these things come out of us. How do we submit those things to Jesus to say he has all authority, he's our only hope? We're going to take some time to respond. If you need to respond in some way, if you want someone to pray with you, we'll be up here. If you need to give your life to the Lord, if you want to look to Jesus, say, man, I've never done that. I need to, I need to respond that way. If you're watching from home, let us know in a message. If you need to be baptized, join the church. Whatever God's moving in you, this is your time to respond as the Spirit moves. God, I pray that you would guide us as we wrestle with these, these complex things in Scripture that we, we hear different thoughts on. We want to see very plainly you are the Ancient of Days. You are enthroned. You have overcome. Teach us by the power of your Spirit to look to Jesus. May we live as new creations in you. 
I pray for this time of response, God, for anyone who doesn't know you, any decisions that need to be made that your spirit would be guiding. As we trust you, we look to you. Guide us as we respond to you.